Hey everybody, everybody. how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Titan Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I may have mentioned recently, I'm Hub, and I hope you're doing fine on this lovely, whenever the heck it is you're listening to this. It was a lovely day out the other day, so I uh, ended up going out and doing something I've been meaning to do a while, which is repaint my fence, and it's happened once before, and as before, I was reminded of a couple of things. One, Tom Sawyer is a fucking asshole. Painting a fence is not fun. And when I was a kid, I would read about him being like the trickster that he was and being like, oh, he tricked those kids into paying him for painting his fence. That kid is a goddamn supervillain. Evil fuck. Secondly, I don't feel any better at karate than I used to. So, in a couple of ways, formative media have let me down. Anyway, I've got a couple of notes about the issue that we're going to cover today. As I mentioned last week, Corey has now embarked on his many-month excursion to Southeast Asia, uh, so he's not available to be recording this. Uh, Fortunately, Lisa has stepped in, and we are going to be covering alternate weeks for the next little while, the Tales of the Teen Titans miniseries from 1982, which has solo issues about Cyborg, Raven, Starfire, and Beast Boy. So that's what we're going to be covering. These issues fit into the Teen Titan continuity right after issue 20 of the series, and I think for the most part before issue 21. So it's going back about a year from the stuff that we've covered most recently. So just so you don't get confused about where you are in linear time. Oh, boy. I don't say this often enough, but I am so grateful that time is linear. The idea of it being any other kind of way scares the living crap out of me. Anyway, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Bradley Null. Going back in time for the mini could cause paradoxes, yet we still go forward with the show's synopsis. Thanks, Bradley. A timely submission. Eh, cause, cause time? Tales of the New Teen Titans, number one. June, 1982. Cyborg. Written by Marv Wolfman, drotted by George Perez, inked by Brett Breedings, lettered by John Costanza, Colored by Adrienne Roy, and edited by Len Wein. Teen Titan Roll Call. Starfire, Beast Boy, Raven, Kid Flash, Wonder Girl, Robin, but mostly Cyborg. The gang's been working pretty hard lately, so at Beast Boy's suggestion, they all decide to go on a camping trip slash team building retreat to the Grand Canyon. I guess they had so much fun there back in issue number 10 when Deathstroke tried to blow them up with a nuclear bomb and then nearly murdered Beast Boy that they just couldn't wait to get back. This time around, they don't have a bloodthirsty assassin who uses 90% of his brain but only 50% of his eyeballs trying to murder them, so they can really concentrate on trust falls, marshmallow roasting, retconning their origins through gratuitous exposition, and cookouts. You know, that kind of shit. Hooray! The gang all changes into their fancy new camping outfits, and Kid Flash starts grilling up some burgers. Raven informs the junior wizard of Wiz that she is a vegetarian, which seems to surprise the shit out of Wally. Really, dude? You've been on and off cohabitating, crime-fighting, and kinda sorta dating for like 20 issues at this point. Is this the first time you've shared a meal? 
Gar starts fishing for compliments about what a good job he did coming up with this idea for a group camping trip. When he mentions the word friends, Cyborg kind of stares off into the middle distance and goes, Friends? Huh. Whenever I hear that word, I have to stare off into the middle distance and recollect the entirety of the first 18 years of my life. Starfire says, Maybe you'd like to vocalize those recollections, Victor. And off we go. When Victor Stone was a baby, his parents, Silas and Eleanor, were loving but hyper-focused brilliant research scientists. They were obsessed with science and performed numerous tests and experiments on their young son, attempting to boost his already genius-level intelligence. By the time he was five, young Victor had an IQ of 170 and had already memorized a whole bunch of sciency words. Also, one time they went to the circus, which was, I guess, fun. He had private tutors for all of his schooling and never really socialized with other children. By the time he was eight, Victor had started to rebel against his isolated and sheltered upbringing. He snuck out of the house and started wandering around New York City, going to movies and stuff. Apparently, his stiflingly rigorous studies didn't include basic traffic safety, because one evening, on his nightly perambulation, Vic was strolling down the middle of the street and was confused and terrified when he saw a car. The vehicle almost ran him over, but at the last minute, a slightly older boy in a dope purple hat pushed Vic out of the way, saving his life. The dapper youngster introduced himself as Ron Evers, and, presumably after explaining to Victor what an automobile was, the two youths became fast friends. Ron was a tough streetwise kid, and soon he and Victor were getting into trouble doing 1920s-style hooligan shenanigans, stealing apples from pushcarts and smoking corncob pipes. Seriously. I mean, I think they're supposed to be smoking cigarettes, but there's at least one panel where it really looked like an eight-year-old Victor is smoking a corncob pipe. Anyway, one night, Vic got picked up by the cops for Grand Theft Apple. His folks got super upset. Vic's mom asked if they'd been pushing him too hard, and Vic was like, Yup! Science is dumb, and I hate it. Can I go to school and hang out with other kids, please? Vic's dad was like, Science isn't dumb. Other kids are dumb. They'll make you do crimes. Science is great. You should only hang out with science, you bad jerk kid. Vic's mom intervened, and eventually his dad begrudgingly acquiesced that Victor would be allowed to attend public school. But, from that moment forward, a wedge of mutual resentment began to develop between father and son. Victor Stone thrived in public school, eschewing rigorous academic pursuits in favor of sport. In high school, he excelled in track, weightlifting, football, and boxing. He remained close friends with Ron and started dating one of his classmates, a pretty young woman named Marcy. Tensions continued to escalate between Vic and his father, who insisted that sports and friendship were stupid and science was great. Vic felt otherwise. The troubled teen sought solace in the company of Ron and Marcy. Ron told Vic that he and his gang had scheduled a fight that evening with a gang of white teenagers called the Hawks. Ron claimed that his own gang needed help because they had been unfairly targeted by the police for being black. Vic was skeptical about the existence of racism. Marcy chimed in that no, racism was actually a thing, and that one time, her dad had experienced it. Vic was pretty sure that wasn't true, and that racism didn't really exist, certainly not on an institutional level, but he decided to go along with Ron to the gang fight anyways, on account of Ron was his pal. Surprisingly, the gang warfare didn't end up being super fun. I mean, Victor started off having a swell time punching jerks with his buddy, but then, one of the punched jerks pulled out a knife. Hey, no fair. The knife jerk cut open Vic's fancy shirt, ruining it. Oh no, nobody ruins Victor Stone's clothing but Victor Stone. 
Oh, and I guess he also sliced Vic across the abdomen. Vic didn't much care for that. He freaked out and started punching the crap out of all of the hawks. Then the cops showed up and everybody ran away. Later that night, when their bruised and bleeding son returned home, Silas and Eleanor Stone were not particularly sympathetic. Silas threatened to disown his son, and Eleanor lectured him that rather than lashing out at those around him, he should instead take his anger at perceived injustices and turn it inward and start being angry at himself for being such a fuck-up. Wow. A few months later, Vic got a call from Ron to meet up over at Ron's tenement apartment building. It seemed that Ron had a project he was working on. He was planning an armed occupation of the Statue of Liberty, and he was hoping to get Victor's help. Vic declined. The star athlete's son of wealthy scientists explained to his impoverished chum that everyone in this country had an equal opportunity in life regardless of their station at birth or the color of their skin, and that if you were unable to succeed and thrive, then the only reason for that was the fact that you didn't try hard enough. Okay. Good to know. Ron told Vic that they weren't friends anymore and went off to take the Statue of Liberty hostage. He was almost immediately arrested and spent a year in jail. Meanwhile, Vic went to college and started training to join the Olympic team in some unspecified event. One day, after practicing with the Olympic sports team, Victor headed over to Star Labs to visit his parents. Turns out that Silas and Eleanor were having a pretty mixed bag of a day. On the one hand, their experiments in creating dimensional portals had just had a remarkable breakthrough. On the other hand, a giant evil fart monster from another dimension had just broken through the portal the scientists had created and killed Eleanor. When Vic opens the door to the lab, the fart monster envelops the athletic teen and eats a whole bunch of his organs and parts of his body. With great effort, Silas was eventually able to force the monster back to where it had come from. Victor passed out from the pain and shock. When he finally awoke a month later, the former Olympic hopeful found that his father had used all of his scientific prowess and a bunch of the robot shit he had invented for the army to save Victor's life, transforming him in the process into the mechanized marvel we know and love today. Victor was not exactly grateful. Vic had always felt that his father valued him more as a scientific experiment than as a human being and a son. The cybernetically enhanced adolescent viewed his current state as a confirmation of that suspicion. Beyond that, the convalescing teen, not entirely unreasonably, blamed Silas for his mother's recent death. As Victor spent more time with his father learning to use his robotic body parts, his resentment grew. When, after five months of training and rehabilitation, Victor was finally able to walk again and go outside, he was discouraged that the public treated him with a mixture of fear and pity. He again cursed his father for turning him into a self-perceived freak of science rather than just letting him die. As soon as he was physically able to, Vic moved out and got himself a cheap apartment in Hell's Kitchen. He hadn't been at his new place for more than a few weeks when who should show up at his door but his good buddy Ron. It seems some mysterious dude named Mr. K had hired Ron to blow up the UN building with dynamite. Ron figured that Vic would welcome an opportunity to claim some revenge on a society that had turned him into a freak. Ron figured wrong. Vic gives his old buddy a similar speech to the one he gave him before about personal accountability and how racism doesn't exist, but even if it did exist, it would be a few isolated incidents and not a systemic issue. Good to know. After Ron left, Vic tried to call his old girlfriend Marcy, but she wouldn't talk to him or see him since his accident. Bummer. Then he went back to his old college and asked his coach if he could go back to doing all of the sports. 
Rather than casually leafing through a rulebook and pronouncing with surprise that there's nothing in the rulebook that says a robot man can't play college athletics, the coach tells him that not only is there plenty in the rulebook that says robot men can't do the sports, but that even if they could, Vic had let his grades slip so badly that he had lost all of his scholarships anyway. When a despondent Victor returned home, he found Ron waiting for him. The gang member turned aspirational terrorist once again implored his buddy to join him on his blowing up the UN adventure. Victor said he knew what he had to do. That night, Victor Stone put on his fanciest arms and legs and climbed to the top of the UN to meet Ron and his would-be building blowing up buddies. Although Vic arrived earlier than the appointed hour, he found that Ron had already set the detonator on the bomb. Hmm. Cyborg, because he's totally cyborg now, tells his old friend and cohorts that he came here tonight to thwart Ron's scheme. Ron replies that he didn't actually want Vic's help anyway, he just wanted a scapegoat. Vic beats up Ron and his pals, delivering as he does so yet another speech about how there's no such thing as oppression, and Ron should have pulled himself up by his bootstraps, and Horatio Alger, and etc. During the scuffle-slash-lecture, Ron stumbles and falls off the building's roof, barely hanging onto the edge with one arm. Vic was about to save his frenemy when he noticed that the bomb Ron set was about to detonate. Not having time to save both his childhood chum and the UN, Vic made the only choice he could. He used his fancy new robot arm to hurl the bomb high into the air and let Ron plummet to his apparent death. Victor mentions that the police never did find Ron's body, but I'm sure he's dead. I mean, who ever heard of a comic book character who dies off-panel and whose body is never recovered returning unexpectedly? Not me, that's for sure. Vic finishes his story and tells his Teen Titan buddies that thanks to them, he ended up thinking that his dad was great and loved him very much, and they shared a great dying dad-slash-devoted-son bonding montage back in New Teen Titans number 8, before Silas finally died from his secret extra-dimensional fart monster-induced radiation poisoning. Anyway, the Titans sure are great buddies, and way better pals to Vic than stupid old racism-noticing, building-falling-off-of, almost-certainly-dead Ron ever was. Hooray! Raven thinks to herself, It must be nice to feel feelings. I don't feel any feelings at all, and it makes me so very sad. I think that very soon I may need to stare off into the middle distance and retcon my own origin. To be continued. Corey was in an unfortunate transporter accident and is now slightly out of phase with the rest of humanity. He cannot be seen or heard. He can be smelled, however. So, if you smell a faint whiff of whiskey and good intentions, why not give a friendly wave to Corey? He does need those good intentions because in his dimension, they will be turned into a mana-like substance which he needs to eat. Conversely, negative emotions are turned into kind of evil spirit type thing, so be careful about those. And he does need that mana because if he eats the food from that realm, well, he is going to be stuck there forever. He'll be back next week. Joining us in his stead is my good for darn near everything wife, Lisa. Lisa, how's it going? Good. Near everything? (laughs) Everything. Yeah! So, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. What'd you think of this issue? It was interesting. <laughs> yeah, so it definitely has some good news for us. Um, racism doesn't exist. 
so systemic racism doesn't exist. That's right. There may be one or two individual racists out there, but certainly nothing that would keep anyone of a different race from succeeding. And achieving any of their dreams if they work hard enough. Right. So, like I said, good news, kind of a surprise, but, uh... <laughs> so, that does seem to be at least somewhat the tone of this uh, comic book. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of kind of shitty. <laughs> uh, I would like to say at the top, if you would like to read more about Cyborg, there's a really good article that is on the Middle Spaces, uh, a site hosted by friend of the show, Osvaldo Ayola. It's by Son of Baldwin, and it's called something along the lines of Cyborg and the Mechanization of the Black Body, and it's great, and you should read it. I didn't read that, but now I want to, because that's something I had in my notes. Cool. <laughs> well, you absolutely should, as should all of you listeners. Yeah, there's a lot going on in this issue. Let's just start with the cover. We see a color shot of Cyborg, and then in the background are flashbacks to the events that happen in the comic book. It's a really nice layout. We also see Cyborg breaking a bunch of chains, which it looks like they were like CGI'd in almost. And I don't know to what extent it was almost like mandatory, like, well, if you have a black character, you have to have him breaking chains because it doesn't really have anything to do with what happened in the storyline. And it's a pretty common motif for black characters, but it's just kind of weird. Other than that, gorgeous cover, and like I said, from the pose he's doing, it really does look like the chains may have been added at the last minute, or it, it looks like they were kind of put in in post. What actually struck me the most about it, it's like the idea of whiteness and blackness doesn't really exist, except for in, like, this weird... I don't know how to put it, like... Yeah, I don't really know how to put it either. This is an idea you come up with against in, I, I'm going to say, well-intentioned liberals of especially the early 80s. You definitely still see this today. But the idea of the solution to everything is being colorblind yeah, and racism. not noticing race, and therefore racism won't exist. But this takes it almost a step further, which is saying that, well, I'm not racist. I'm assuming the writer is feeling this way. So therefore, racism isn't really a thing. And it's really just if you notice it or react to the idea of it in any way, that's really more of the problem. Yeah, I did have like a 60-year-old white woman tell me that race isn't a real thing. <laughs> well, she would know. <laughs> you don't see it, it doesn't exist, right? Oh, right. Oy. And, and th that is kind of something that is viewed to, like I said, liberals of that generation as being a virtue. Wolfman has an interesting history with that. He actually was kind of blacklisted from DC Comics in the late 60s and didn't get any work there for almost a decade because he tried to introduce a black character that would have been the first black superhero at DC Comics. It would have been in, I think, issue 20 of the original Teen Titans run. And we talked about it a little bit on the show. You can check out that uh, episode if you want. But what's interesting to me is that the story he was attempting to tell with that introduction of a black character, which DC Comics was like, we're just not ready to deal with this level of controversy, is essentially the same story that he's telling here. And it's a story that comes up really often in comic books when writers try to talk about race in comic books from this era. The story being, well, these militant black people are really just being duped. 
So I, I just want to be clear about this. The idea is that the, I don't know, the black power movement or something is not the solution. Yeah, that is, that the black power movement is essentially a problem that is kind of on par and the equivalent to white racism. Like yeah, angry. the the original story <laughs> that that Wolfman was telling was there is this black superhero who kind of doesn't care about race because that's the best way to be. That's the idea. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. His younger brother is getting in, in mixed up with this black power movement, which is really just being duped by criminals, uh, and that all of these uh, militant idealists are just really pawns by people who are using their idealism and their anger, which you definitely shouldn't feel angry about yeah. oppression or racism, because that's that's not really the way to solve anything. Uh, that very much is an underlying message. But that was kind of the original tone of the story that he was trying to tell, which at the time, DC Comics was like, no, that's too radical, uh, because it has a black protagonist, essentially. So he was shelved and really was blacklisted from ironically, that phrase, uh, from writing for DC Comics for quite some time. And then he ends up telling this story now, which I think if it had been told in 1968, still not a good message, but would have been more mitigated by the fact that at that time, introducing a black character at all was more of a, like, yeah. radical act. And that if you were doing it, maybe in order to get it published, you needed to tone down the message in some way. It's still not great. I don't know if he would necessarily know anything different, though. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it just, it was interesting that you mentioned anger. It seems that in the story, the way that Cyborg f is filled with rage, and there's always anger, and there's hate, all those feelings. I mean, they're negative emotions in the story, but it seems like that's just a character fault. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that especially, it's a character fault in Victor. And that it's not justified or connected, or even if it is justified or connected to anything, it's just viewed as, well, that's just not a useful feeling, so get rid of it, and then we can talk. I mean, I guess we are talking about a white guy writing in the 1980s. Yes, yeah. <laughs> or um, anybody writing ever now, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, a white, guy, a white guy writing in the 80s and a white guy being published in the 80s, because yeah. there are also gatekeepers to which stories get told. Yeah. Let's just give a little bit of background on who the character Cyborg is when we are introduced to him at the beginning of this. Because you haven't read very many of the New Teen Titans comics, right? No, sir. Cyborg, when he was introduced as a New Teen Titan, was given the backstory, essentially the backstory that's in this, where he was in an accident, his dad was a wealthy scientist, he was a star athlete. And he was an angry young black man. Copyright. Um, <laughs> for that kind of character. It's so trope. that they could use the, like, abonics sort of speak, right? Yes. But I think... Jive talk more, right? Yeah. But then they started writing him as though he was a angry young black man who grew up on the streets and would talk about things like, well, if you came up like I did, you would know this. I think almost forgetting that he had been given the backstory that he was upper middle class. And so I think in some ways this story is trying to fit those pieces together. There also was a pretty stark transition in issue 8 of the comic book, which is a really good issue. But it's when they switched stereotypes for Cyborg to an extent, and he went from being 
angry young black man to magical wisdom Negro who has <laughs> who has wisdom and advice and is no longer angry and yeah has wisdom and advice to help his white counterparts and to help a group of young white handicapped children who are dealing with their disabilities. And it's a very abrupt character shift. It basically happens when his dad dies. There's like a two-page montage oh. in which he makes peace with his father and finds out that his dad really had his best interests at heart all along. And mostly that he was wrong to be so angry all the time. Because being angry is always wrong. So that's kind of the point in which this miniseries starts. And... There's an attempt, I think, in it to kind of retcon all of the pieces of this character that we've been given that don't really fit together into fitting together a little bit more. And it does that. It It's awkward the way that it does it, but it, it does accomplish that. It does say like, okay, yes, he grew up wealthy, but then he rebelled against that and ran away. The time compression that happens within that is a little bit confusing. It's weird. And honestly, I don't think anyone's so sheltered that they don't know, like, what a car is. <laughs> that totally struck me, too. Yeah, there's a scene where eight-year-old Cyborg runs away so that he can go see the movie Dirty Dingus McGee. <laughs> because what eight-year-old wouldn't? I thought it was The Wild Bunch that he was seeing. It was a double feature. He was seeing Dirty Dingus <laughs> McGee and The Wild Bunch, okay. which is a hell of a double feature. <laughs> I have still not seen the movie. I have read a bit about it. I kind of want to see Dirty Dingus McGee. And much like I suspect an eight-year-old cyborg, almost entirely because of the name of the movie. <laughs> it stars Frank Sinatra. By all accounts, it's a pretty terrible movie. Most Sinatra films from that era were because he really was like, all right, one take and we're done so that I can get back to Vegas. But yeah, he runs away to go see Dirty Dingus McGee and the Wild Bunch. And... There's some caption work where I had private tutors, so I never went to public school, never really went out much at all, and not knowing stuff almost proved the death of me, because then he is standing in front of a car with headlights that are blaring at him, and he's just standing there motionless. And also somebody is screaming at him, watch out. Yeah. Yeah. But he's been so sheltered, he doesn't know what a car is. I wonder if it was like a The Village type situation where his parents were telling him that like, yes, we're teaching you this advanced science stuff, but the year is 1847. <laughs> well, actually, so this actually speaks to to his, um, his sheltered upbringing kind of makes me think about his views on race. I think I was maybe just trying to explain it a little bit. No, and I was thinking that too. It does kind of make sense if you view him... I don't think we were supposed to read the story this way. Because <laughs> race doesn't actually exist. <laughs> right. And I think that really is the, the message that I think we are supposed to take away from this is that, well, Cyborg is right. And we are supposed to view the comic coming from the standpoint that he arrives at at the end, which is that race really isn't an important factor in anything. Mm -hmm. And that it's wrong to be angry all the time. But, but friends are important. Yes. If they're good friends who don't try to tell you that racism exists. <laughs> like a bad friend. <laughs> so um, back to the point. The idea that his two incredibly brilliant research scientist parents who got their PhDs, I'm assuming in the 60s and 70s, as black people in the United States have not encountered systemic racism is fucking insane. Well... 
I mean, you could read the subtext. You're right. That is absolutely insane, especially in academia where, yeah. Everyone's an asshole. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, especially in like the 50s and 60s when, yeah, I think they would have been getting their, their training. Yeah, Of course. Incredibly racist. There could be the read, and this is, I, I again, I don't think this is what, this is me trying to make the story a better story than it is, <laughs> and view it as one that is being told by a faulty narrator, mm. that perhaps his parents, that is, they talk about how they were pushing him so hard, that there there is that idea of, I've talked to a lot of black people who at some point in their life have been given the speech, if you want to succeed, you have to try twice as hard as any white person to do the same thing. That may have been the subtext of why they were pushing him constantly to overachieve in every regard of his scientific training. And I mean, I think that's I think that's totally a fair argument to make. I just also think the idea that you don't have your identity inform you and your internalized ideas about what society as a whole thinks about your group like as a woman you know like what do you think about women how do you think that they should behave in you know public instances how should they behave in a domestic situation you know like if you think about all of the ways that our identities the identities that society gives us are internalized and put forth in the world and inform our behavior mm-hmm. like if your kid has 170 IQ you fucking talk about it I mean I just I understand that this is a you know a piece of fiction written at a certain time right. by a certain person in a certain universe with a certain target demographic with certain gatekeepers but it just seems like so insane to me that you don't you don't have the knowledge that somebody's identity matters <laughs> yeah. and and that and that it's yeah that's just, that was my main, like, most of my notes were about that. <laughs> yeah, no, and I think I think that's fair. It's, honestly, I we have been asked about covering this miniseries for a long time on the podcast. A number of people have written about it. And I read this issue a few months ago and was just like, shit, I hate this issue. I don't <laughs> want to do this miniseries. <laughs> But I I do think it's good to talk about it and just say that it definitely does inform this character and the way that it's written and to view the time that it came from and the writer who wrote it and be aware of what is being said. So, yeah. Let's talk about some more slightly fun things that are happening (laughs) in this issue. I did think it was interesting on page 15. Mm-hmm. Cyborg says, he, this is right after his father is transforming him into the cyborg. Mm-hmm. It says, piece by piece I was rebuilt. A modern Prometheus, my father thought. A latter-day Frankenstein was more like it. Do you think he meant Frankenstein's monster? Mm-hmm. I mean, he has an IQ of 170. No, do you know what Frankenstein's subtitle was? What? A modern Prometheus. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> I was unaware of that. (laughs) That page is freaking gorgeous. It's so beautiful, yeah. It also is a really interesting, I think, mirror to a previous page that was a... There are the two big montage scenes. The one is him being transformed into this Frankenstein creation that he, he hates, that he feels trapped within. The previous one is of him transforming his body through sports and doing workouts and... I think it's a really interesting mirror that, like, first you see him, like, working out and, like, I guess being a star on his high school boxing team, which 
Do high schools have boxing teams? I don't know. It was the 70s and 80s. Maybe they did. Maybe, Maybe he went did. to like a private school. There were only white people pretty much in the in the pictures. He said he wanted to go to private he he wanted to go to public school. Oh, gotcha. I think that was a, a big thing. Maybe Maybe it was private school, but it was just a school that wasn't just private tutors. Like, he just didn't want to be homeschooled. Which, also, it's treated like that's him lashing out. That's a reasonable request that you want to be socialized on some level. Uh, And that, yeah, his dad's response to that is, No, 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 you're angry. You need to be angry at yourself. For, For what? There's a panel where his dad directly tells him to internalize his rage at himself. That's No, his mom tells him that. No, his dad does, too. Maybe you're right. Maybe it is his mother... Telling him to sublimate his rage? Yes. It's what moms are good for, you know? Right. You're right. She does start it off by saying your father was right. Your father was right. There is anger inside of you. But damn it, don't you ever aim that anger at us, Victor. Aim it where it belongs. At yourself. Yeah. <laughs> what was I talking about? We were talking about the more fun stuff in the years. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's it's interesting to think about, like, especially with his folks the important like the difference between sheltering someone mm-hmm. and you know providing them a healthy place to grow and change and also you know destroying their personhood yeah and i i thought actually about this when when cyborg becomes cyborg when his dad kind of you know there's there's a boundary around your physical body that's really important and you know it comes up a lot in a lot of different avenues but um his his dad just like violates that so horrifically yeah. And really just uh, destroys his sense of self and who he is in this very it's not violent, it is overprotective. It's like this this mirroring of his earlier life. Right. And it was just it was interesting to think about, you know, how ideas of selfhood and identity play out in this transformation that happens. Yeah. Um and I want to read that article so bad now. <laughs> <laughs> it's really good. Yeah. There is also this idea, which we touched on a little bit before, but that Cyborg and his parents are right, I think, from the perspective of this comic book. Yeah. To try to shield Victor, and that it's when he associates with lower classes that they have a corrupting and negative influence on him. And none of them are portrayed as sympathetic characters. Not Marcy, his initial girlfriend not Ron. Like, the public school kids are just like, no, they're they're bad. And when they try to discuss with him their anger and stuff, his response is like, no, you guys are wrong. I, I've always really known that deep down. And so there's definitely issues of class that come into this mm-hmm. as well as issues of race. <laughs> what did you think about the fun camping story that the Titans were on? <laughs> Uh, I, we're going to the Grand Canyon. I know. I'm really excited about that. Yes. So there is going to be a two week interruption of the podcast. Just so you guys are aware, there will not be an episode posted in the week of the 11th or the following week. Sorry. But we're going to be having fun and you can think about us with the wind in our hair. We're going to be doing research (laughs) on this mini series. And we really need to go to the Grand Canyon to find out really the kind of headspace that the Teen Titans were in when they went on this camping trip. When they really wanted to like feel into their identities and like share that in depth with their friends Mm -hmm. and cope companions. I really liked the framing of this issue and really the whole series of like 
hey, we're always fighting crime together. Let's have a work retreat, basically. And they go to the Grand Canyon. They have a big camping trip together, and they're all having fun. It was apparently Beast Boy's idea. And I guess they're just going to take turns telling their stories. I thought it was very funny that Cyborg, like, immediately. (laughs) He was like, friends, huh? (laughs) I think we've all known people like that. It's, I mean, I would have expected it more from Raven, uh, just oh, because she's, she's canonically more goth. <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> she's next, though. Yeah, I know. And I'm looking forward to that, honestly. <laughs> yeah, that is a weird, like, yes, yeah, cyb- Cyborg, they, they get down the camping trip, somebody mentions the word friendship, and then he's like, uh, I guess I'm going to talk about myself for half an hour. <laughs> Everybody gather around. <laughs> I wouldn't worry about it having that much of an impact on the other Titans, Maybe some of them, but Kid Flash, at least, is terrible at listening, which has come up a lot recently in comic books and comes up in this, too, because he has been at least co-workers with a potential love interest of and potentially roommates with, I think they're living in the Titan Tower, at least off and on, Raven for about a year now, <laughs> and he did not know that she is a vegetarian. I know! And there is no way that Raven hasn't mentioned that. <laughs> It would be like her not mentioning that she was doing CrossFit. So we do get that from Wally. So yeah, I wouldn't be too overly concerned that Victor has just talked about himself this much because I don't know how much impact it had. Yeah, I thought that, I don't know, it just seemed like a device to get to the story. And like, really, maybe firm up the firm up the characters moving forward. Yeah, I think that is a yeah. lot of the idea behind it. Uh, and part of what I like about using it as a framing device is it sets it apart as this is a miniseries. They're getting away from their work adventure, which is the regular series, and having a departure where they're all just hanging out together and it's kind of an encapsulated form. And I think that's a really smart way to do a miniseries in which you get the origins of characters that we see a lot more in the ongoing. And I think that's kind of fun. Yeah, no, it was a it was a smart device and I think it probably came about at a really good time mm-hmm. in the series also. It was well thought out. Well, it was partly because it was getting more popular and partly because the pacing that Wolfman has and it, it's in this story too and it's in all of them is just frenetic. Yeah. It, it's so many things are constantly happening. There are so many wheels in motion. They're just really There's a lot of comic book in each of these comic books. So in order to drop information about these characters who are, we get jumped in with the first issue essentially with four new characters or three in a reintroduction of one of them at least is a lot. And they aren't really given space to develop that way in terms of their backstory. And so, yeah, I think that's a smart way to do this. One thing I wanted to mention, you mentioned his pacing is so frenetic and so fast. The artwork in order to accomplish some of the storytelling, some of the artwork was just so incredible and like so, such a beautiful, smart way to do it. Like um, you, you, we mentioned the montage scenes. There's a scene where Cyborg is uh, Vic Cyborg. I don't know. Mm-hmm. What would you call him? I go back and forth. But before he's Cyborg? It's Vic. Yeah, Vic yeah. or Victor. Yeah. I just, it's interesting to think about that. I guess it is what his identity is. Anyway. Self-definition, you know, mm-hmm. and all that. <laughs> but no, so there's this beautiful montage scene where he is, like, relearning how to use his body, and he's really frustrated, and just, like, 
the way that there's calendar pages that flow throughout the scene. Just, it's, it's so smart. Yeah. It's, and I mean, like, the scene where he's being put together and the scene where he develops into a sport, an athlete. Yeah. There's all of that. And there's a ton of just, like I said, I, I mentioned, like, just the double feature that he's going to see Dirty Dingus McGee and the Wild Bunch as a double feature. My guess is, and I don't know, I haven't seen the original script for it, but I think that was the artist doing it. And it really does, like, set the stage and the scene and that this is one of the things we know about Victor now is, like, we've been speculating beforehand about what his potential age was. It says that he was eight years old when he saw this, so they worked backwards from that, and it was 1972, and that's the year these movies came out. Like, it's really clever. The time stuff becomes really confusing in these comic books because, like, okay, so ten years ago was 19, was 1970 or 1971, and so that's, so he was eight years old then. But he's also the same age as Robin, who has been a character since, like, 1939. <laughs> Robin is timeless, though, let's be honest. It's Yes, he is. And eventually all of the characters become timeless. But so, like, the idea of, like, that kind of set definition of it. Do you think Robin is the Peter Pan of DC Comics? Oh, so you don't think he's an actual teenager when this is coming? Oh, you mean the literal Peter Pan. <laughs> Not just, like... He has a Peter Pan complex. <laughs> uh, both. <laughs> maybe. So you think he maybe re is recruiting, when he recruits the group of the Teen oh, Titans, totally they're what... his Lost Boys and they stop aging? That is a very interesting read on this. Who do you think is his Tinkerbell? Oh, I don't know. I mean, it would depend on what era we're talking about in this in this era. In this era, yeah. It could be Raven. I was thinking Raven. Starfire, though. But I mean, she's got the she's got the like the weird curves. She's got some hair. <laughs> yep, yeah, she flies. She's very pleasant. Yes, <laughs> although Tinkerbell's she fast. flies, but yeah, uh, Raven has wings, and oh. she also does sometimes try to kill the <laughs> the other Titans, Raven. much like Tinkerbell did. <laughs> so yeah, huh? What what to think about? He dresses kind of like Peter Pan. Wow. This You're is... welcome. This is why you have me as a guest sometimes, is I just provide a very interesting perspective for you and your friends. Agreed. Back to the artwork. Yes, it is absolutely gorgeous. It is the same creative team that does the regular series, with the exception of those are generally inked by a guy named Romeo Tangal. This one is inked by a guy named, I think, Brent Breedings? Something like that? That's a great name. Uh, Brett Breeding still a great name who it's a great name and he also does a great job it is a absolutely gorgeous issue and there's so much detail and really character building done through the artwork really that, that's what stood out to me in this yeah. piece is just like the art was so beautiful and good although why is ron gray <laughs> yeah i don't know is it like the four color comic problem probably yeah it's like i want a different tone for this for the skin tone, and so I'm gonna put green in it. <laughs> yeah. He does look like, he totally looks like a corpse, though. Well, that may be foreshadowing. <laughs> it's not in every panel. I think the worst it is is when they're in the rumble. Yeah. Um, and there's also a white guy who looks gray in that. <laughs> I think that may have been they just couldn't decide which characters were which race, so they're like, everybody's gray. <laughs> and that would be the perfect solution <laughs> to our... Issues of race that we're having. Do you ever read The Lathe of Heaven? No, I haven't. It's really good. Unfortunately, uh, its author, Ursula Le Guin, passed away this week. But it's a great book. But it, do you know the premise of it? 
Uh, it's a... I know you, you you nodded that you do know, but I'm going to explain anyway in case the listeners <laughs> wait, haven't wait, hold heard on, it. Uh, yes, I do, but I would love to hear again. <laughs> the main character in it, his dreams retroactively become reality every night. He's the only person who can remember the way the world used to be before he had his dreams. And he is seeing a psychiatrist who is at first skeptical and then tries to program him to dream certain things and it's very much monkey paw style magic um but one of the things that happens is his psychiatrist is like i want an end to racism so he has him do this dream and in it there's a complete erasure of race and everyone is is gray monotone people and it that's a bad thing (laughs) but yeah it's a it's a really good book you should read it i haven't read ursula Gwynn for years and years I yeah. want to read her essays. That's the... Anyway. Yeah. No, uh, yeah, My Left Hand of Darkness is really good. I read that, like, when I was in high school. Yeah. But it's been a minute. We learn at the end that the cat's paw to Ron's allegedly radical revolutionary plan to blow something up. Not the, the Statue of Liberty, which you wanted UN. to blow up before. It's the UN building. Yes, to blow up the UN building. Uh, is being funded by Mr. K. Is that a person in the universe that I don't know about? I think they're alluding it to being somebody, but we don't know who yet. Uh, all we know about the person is that they go by the name of Mr. K, and they are in control of a whole blamed country. Yeah. And they're funding a group of radicals to blow up the UN. Maybe they hate unity. Probably. I bet that's what it is. Probably. Yeah. They probably think racism exists. <laughs> At least it makes more sense than Ron's previous plan to blow up the Statue of Liberty. And I do kind of like the fact that it was just like not a real plan and not a well put together plan. And as soon as he got near the Statue of Liberty, he was arrested and <laughs> went to jail. It is kind of surprising that they let him out relatively soon after that, like within a one or two year period. After him trying to blow up the Statue of Liberty, he's back on the streets. Were there other things about the the meat of the issue you want to discuss? I know you took a lot of notes. I mean, most of my notes are like, how is this? <laughs> how is this the narrative that exists? How are these particular people who have experienced the lives that they're experiencing, or that they've experienced, raising somebody without any knowledge of? automobiles (laughs) really (laughs) yes i don't know it just seems so odd to me that they don't have any dialogue about what it means to be black in america yeah like i i feel maybe it's just because you know we're living in a time where those conversations happen a lot more and and you know as white people we're aware of those conversations happening like maybe you know maybe in the 80s like nobody talked about the fact that you have to talk about yeah. What it means to be a black person in America. I think that is very much the case, actually. Yeah. Although, as I said, I do think that, that it could be viewed that that is the subtext of the way that they are pushing him. That, no, if you want to achieve anything, you need to be a super genius. Yeah. But, yeah, and as it, I said, that's subtext. And, and it's largely one that I invented. It's, 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 <laughs> so, it's informed by our current position in space yes. and time, right? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's totally what... Yeah, just as their narrative was was informed by their space and time. Yeah, there's... Um, the one other thing I wanted to mention that I thought about with the with the issue is who is their... Who's their target demographic with this? Like, there... It just... It's an interesting... Like, what, what 
uh, just something I don't know about the comic book. Like, who was reading? Who were they wanting to get to read more? What was that? Yeah, who was reading was an awful lot of people. Uh, comic books were way more popular back then, and they were trying to reach a wide audience. Who they were writing for specifically is generally middle to upper class white teenagers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that is who you see represented in the comics over and over again, which is why this issue, despite all of its flaws, is at least interesting as it is a predominantly black cast. Through, I mean, it's through flashback, uh, and the other Teen Titans are still very much white or orange or green, but coded as white. In all fairness, black and gray. That's fair. <laughs> but yeah, there's it's it's interesting to think about who who the target audience was, who they were looking to grow the audience, like what, yeah, how how ideas of race played out in that way. That was there's a lot of in, in terms of the marketing of comic books, and uh, this is an extrapolation that I'm making in terms of the way DC viewed things based on what I've heard from the way that Marvel viewed things, at least in the early 70s, was they did a few brief and not terribly well-done experiments in introducing black characters and having books based around them. And when they were not immediately successful, they reached the conclusion that, you know what, we can get black kids to buy books about white characters but we can't get white people to buy books about black characters so let's stop trying mm. rather than saying like well these are books about black characters that are written by, by white. white people yep. and we are not really putting the same resources behind the promotion of them and the marketing of them because we don't know how to do that because we've never tried before it's something very very similar actually just happened in current comic books with lines of comics at marvel and dc a lot of what are referred to primarily derogatorily as their diversity comics uh were just canceled yeah um, i heard the cyborg wasn't there a cyborg one that there, I'm not sure about the cyborg one. There may have been a cyborg one, but the uh, there was a series called Black Panther and the Crew. There was there were a lot of of them that were recently canceled. All of the comic books too that that Marvel, uh, Marvel I think had four titles that had won uh, Glad awards mm -hmm. for representation mm -hmm. of uh, LGBTQ community members. All four of those were just canceled. Well, just, it's, it's like that there, I mean, I think the big thing behind a market force is, right, there has to be mm -hmm. interest in it, and I feel like sometimes, you know, my big thing right now, as I'm applying to grad school to be a counselor, <laughs> cool, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but something that I find um, in terms of figuring out how to have these difficult conversations about race, gender identity, you know, system, systems of oppression in general like, is you have to fucking listen. Like, yeah. we're both white. <laughs> we, you know, we live in Portland, Oregon. We don't have to confront issues like this day to day um, at all. Yeah. Really. We could not think about it. It could be, that could be our life. And it's just, it's un, it's unfathomable to me that you wouldn't want to at least try to understand something else. Like, yeah. why would you not want to, like, learn a little bit about what somebody else's experience is? And... I don't know, just try to... Because it's hard. <laughs> and because, I think you put it earlier, we don't have to. I mean, we, sh we, sh we should, and I definitely do try to, but it was something like, when I was talking about, like, 
even in the very small lens of like why I didn't want to cover this comic book because I don't want to deal with this because I don't want to talk about it. It comes up so infrequently that we are confronted with having to deal with this as, you know, white people that are in the position that we're in, that when we do, it it seems like a chore rather than something that we have to deal with every day, you yeah, know? Yeah, it's not something that is, like, part of our identity that we have to confront over and over again. But, I mean, here's the, here's the great thing that I have learned, at least by listening more and having more conversations, is, like, you, if you are a person of color... Um, if you're part of the LGBTQ community, um, if you're othered in some way in, you know, in society, like, you don't get a fucking choice. Yeah. <laughs> Either, even if it's just internally, like, you do not get a choice. And so, um, not honoring that or, like, paying attention to that, yeah. um, just trying to erase that is violent, you know, like, trying to release, erase somebody's experience is yeah. a violent act and that that in and of itself I think is a reason that I I want to be more aware and more engaged. I'm not always going to do a great job. Yeah. <laughs> and and I'm not always going to do it in a, the right way, but it's important to hear people of color's stories um in particular in engaging with this material. It's important to hear somebody who has li- lived that experience talk about it because otherwise I'm not going to fucking learn. Yeah. Yeah, and so it's frustrating to hear I mean, it's interesting, of course, to read, like, a white dude's version of what it means to be a black teenager yeah. who lived an incredibly privileged existence. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, I would... But it's not useful. It's useful, like, as a historical piece. Right. No, I, I know what you mean. And, unfortunately, at, at this time... That's all that there was. That's really all that there was. There was, I believe, this is 82, I think. I'm not sure if Marvel had the one black writer that they had for a very long time, uh, who is a guy who at the time wrote under the name Jim Owlsley, uh, and now writes as Christopher Priest. Uh, But he's still working in comics and has a number of actually very high-profile titles, which are great. Didn't Sam Delaney... Sam Delaney wrote a couple of issues of Wonder Woman uh, back in, I believe, 69, Mm -hmm. and... And then got canned. And then got canned and was given feminism as a excuse for why he was fired. Um, and yeah, I, I know I've talked about that before, but you should look that up and you should also read those issues because they're really, really interesting. But yeah, I think at the time there were a handful of black artists working and maybe one black writer for the big two comic book publishers. Uh, I think Trevor Von Eden was an artist who was working for... I think he was still working for DC at the time. Uh, He may have been at Marvel occasionally. I know he did work for both companies. And there was a guy named Billy Graham, who I'm not sure was if he was still drawing at the time, but he was great. And there are others that I'm sure I am forgetting or missing out on because it's something that, by and large, is not talked about nearly enough. Um, Yeah. Yeah, so that's what I wanted to talk about. I wanted to talk about how to talk about this stuff a little bit. Yeah. And I wanted to talk about, like, how important it is to talk about this stuff. Even if it sucks. And even if it's a shitty representation, like, it helps you to explore how you're thinking and feeling about it and what would be valuable to engage with in a a real way. Yeah, and I am aware of the fact, too, that it is two white people that are commenting (laughs) on a white person's portrayal (laughs) of a black teenager. Yeah. So, there's that. Yeah. You ready to move on to the (laughs) minutiae? We live in an imperfect world. Let's go. (laughs) Okay. 
Rick, sing us in. We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, what was your favorite sound effect in this issue? There were three sound effects. Okay. I counted them. I see. <laughs> Which of the three was your favorite? Or do you want to start with the two that were not your favorite? <laughs> well, there was Knock Knock, spelled N-O-K-N-O-K. Uh-huh. There was one that I don't remember. Uh, was and... it wee 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 I know there was a siren noise. <gasps> oh, I didn't see that one. Oh, that was so... pretty good. Is that so your favorite? So there may have been four. No, no, no. Okay. Uh, Crunk. Yeah, Crunk is the best. <laughs> <laughs> that that is, I believe, Cyborg. Is he crunking Ron? Or he's crunking on the on the roof of the UN. Oh yes, he he crunks two of Ron's cronies mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. That's how you crunk, man. Yep. Oh, there's spack. Also. Oh, and there's thud. Wowzers! I there's you. quite a bit going on here. But yeah, no, Crunk was my favorite as well. It's a nice word, nice onomatopoeic, and uh, now is a slang term, which it wasn't then, which makes it even more fun. (laughs) Let's take this party to the Bozone. In this issue, what was your favorite instance of one character calling another character a bozo, either literally or metaphorically? On page four, you know, Cyborg's getting real deep in that emotional stuff. Mm -hmm. He's like really getting in there. Yeah. And Beast Boy, as is his wont, says, You were a genius. What happened, Vic? You take too many stupid pills. Burn! And then be- and then Cyborg says, Real funny, Logan. Ever considered taking up a new career as a corpse? Sick oh! burn! Yeah, I had the same one. <laughs> um, yeah. I love... What a simple and kind of generic insult. What's the matter? You take too many stupid pills? <laughs> Pretty great. Oh, I liked the taking up a new career as a corpse because I thought it was like so overdramatic. Yeah. yeah, they're both great. So we're two for two. I know, I know. We are on the same page. We should probably get married or something. <laughs> Speaking of being on the same page, what was your favorite panel in the Man, I had like four. <laughs> yeah, I, I had a few too. Let's work forward to your favorite one. Like what's the least favorite? What was your least favorite of your favorite? Or if you don't have them ranked, what was one that wasn't your most favorite but was still up there? Well, I just thought on page five, there's this panel where you have like this outline of Vic's face in the middle of his parents in like blue uh, doing computer stuff. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that like him being inundated with information when he was a child. Uh, yeah, and and also like it seems like he's like the subject of tests in this in this panel. It was just so startling to me in a way. It was like this his expression is very like uncertain and scared. It, I don't know, it was just a very cool way to represent, you know, his emotional state at that time. Yeah. Um and I thought that was really cool. Do you have how many do you have? I had 3. So and two of them We've already talked about a little. I had both of the montage pages. Yeah. Uh, and I think we already talked about just like how really well done they are and how kind of mirrors of each other they are, where they're both in certain ways Victor's body being transformed, one through his own efforts and one almost as a form of torture of his dad saving him. Uh, but they're just so well laid out and just really 
there's such good storytelling in both of them. Yeah, and that that one and also the training one where he is training to use his new body and, like, uh, relearning how to walk and yeah. hold things. I thought the way that that was laid out was so astonishing. That's probably my favorite one. That one or the reformation of his body was both really good. But um, I also really like on page 23 there is a picture of him in all his cybernetic glory in front of the moon with stars in the middle of Manhattan, which is funny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's really, it's really beautiful. Like, it's a really stark image of strength and um, yeah and it's the it's looking up at him in a low angle shot which makes him appear even more powerful and yes there's the moon and stars behind him really drives home the idea that he is a man of the future kind mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. it that that one is really really nice too i think my absolute favorite is the very first page which is happy cyborg jumping <laughs> over the grand canyon and with a big grin on his face and a duffel bag over his shoulder he looks it's so goofy really when sweet. he smiles, though. <laughs> it's because you don't see it very often, but I, I really liked it. It's just a nice shot of him, and I don't think we get enough of either he is looking angry, or he is looking pensive, or he is, like, staring off into the middle distance being wise. And we just don't see him grinning very often. And mm. I, uh, I like seeing a happy cyborg jumping over the Grand Canyon. <laughs> we can do that soon enough. Maybe. <laughs> I, I need to talk to you before we go. Please, please don't try to jump over the Grand Canyon. I'm not doubting you or your abilities. It's just, please don't try to jump over the Grand okay. Canyon. I'm good for everything, though. <laughs> you, you are. But maybe don't try to be good at jumping over the Grand Canyon. Okay. Thank you. I'll fly. Did you have a timestamp or a show and tell for this issue? Yeah, I had both. But I don't know how good I was at it. So timestamp actually what we discussed in the in the like the the movie thing. Was yeah, like the perfect timestamp. Yeah, I, I that was the one that I yeah. that I was the most fixated on. Although there was also I had the black power poster in his room too. Yeah, and there are a number of little things that set his childhood and teenagerdom as being alternatively the early and mid seventies. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a ton of that stuff that that's in there. And yeah, he has a Black Power poster in his room. I don't know exactly what it's saying or if it's just that was their shorthand for saying he's angry. I don't know what they were trying to say versus what they were saying because what they were saying to me was Cyborg was pretty cool as a teenager. <laughs> and I don't think that was what I was supposed to be taking away from that. No, it was interesting. One other thing, going back to the, the main part of the issue, it was interesting to me when his girlfriend was talking about how her dad got passed up for a promotion at work for a white guy mm -hmm. and Ron like asking him to go beat up this white gang with him like how mm -hmm. that is all conflated as the same thing yeah yeah that that was really frustrating for me yeah okay sorry no don't be sorry back to normal back to normal minutia time um show and tell I mean the artwork did so much heavy lifting in this issue it really did I mean there was a, a bunch of instances that I was like oh you didn't really need to do that but on page 24, where Ron is hanging on to the edge of the building with the, his fingertips, and there's five seconds on the timer for the bomb. Like, you did not need to tell me, Ron or the UN, I had five seconds to decide. <laughs> like, the expression on Cyborg's face. 
Yeah. And, I mean, you could just have the, the, the picture there. It is, it's so well done in terms of the artwork, where you have a panel that is divided by Victor's face, and it has this expression of tension on it, and you see Ron on one side, who I believe in that panel is white. <laughs> he is um, totally white! Holy! And then on the other side of the panel is just the time display on the detonator to this bomb. Yeah, you're right. You don't need to have the Ron or the UN. I had five seconds to decide. Although, depending on how the script was written, I don't know if the Wolfman would have known that Perez was going to do such a good job of that. But yeah, I, I think you're right. I just had the timestamp in this one, and I, I went with mostly the Dirty Dingus McGee uh, because it gave me the opportunity to write down Dirty Dingus McGee. Hmm. You're a simple man with simple pleasures. It's true. Let's get into one that I think might take a little while. Sartorially speaking, what instances of fashion in this issue would you like to discuss? Um, I thought it was pretty cool in general. On page three, the first thing that struck me actually pretty much about the entire issue was the fucking hair of Starfire. That girl has got some volume. She does. It is amazing. Well, it is made of magical space fire, and uh, <laughs> apparently it takes to product very well. <laughs> well, I think the main thing is, like, the size of her head is actually the same size as her, her, he her like, her bump. <laughs> oh, that's the golden ratio. That's how you know she's beautiful. <laughs> It's um, impressive. It is. I liked all of their camping outfits. Um, <laughs> I liked Beast Boy in his green overalls and plaid shirt. I love when Raven shows up dressed as a rhinestone cowboy in her casual wear. I loved uh, Starfire's short shorts and sweater with a collared white shirt camping look. They all look so cool in their camping look. I love Robin's deep V <laughs> with the uh, the colored the colored collar and and cuffs on the do you need one of short those? sleeve shirt yes okay I'll get you one for our trip okay um, <laughs> and we are gonna be camping <laughs> but also I love all of the seventies fashion that happens yeah. in the flashbacks the one that I think is perhaps most telling is I believe it's on page nine and it informs something that we see of Victor's character later on. Which is, he is getting dressed, he is wearing a cool paisley shirt uh, with a wide collar that is unbuttoned down to mid-chest, I would say. And he is wearing that in his underpants. He starts having a fight with his dad, and then he storms out of the room, presumably just wearing the shirt and his underpants. I think that is really setting the stage for, even as a teenager, Vic really liked to run around the city wearing his underpants. <laughs> Because we see time and time again when Victor gets upset, he will tear off whatever clothes he is wearing and start jumping around. Because I've never been completely sure whether his cyborg outfit is an outfit or if that's the parts of him that are cybernetic and he's just jumping around naked. But uh, yeah, I really enjoyed that. I like the outfit that he's wearing and I like that it is now canonical that growing up, Victor too liked to just jump around the city in his underpants. Possibly his parents didn't teach him what pants were. <laughs> this like really ties up a lot of loose ends for you for this yeah, for, for this it's, character it's, it's helpful i also must say i really like his outfit for camping but i think it's like very chic like that black turtleneck with the blue belt and those white pants that are pleated i believe not practical but damn well, i would rock that shit it's a good look mm -hmm. although i will note 
that apparently at some point during his storytelling, Victor got upset and ripped his <laughs> pants off and had to put on new pants because at the end of the issue, he is wearing the same black turtleneck, but with blue jeans. Oh, no, he's wearing the pleated pants there. So yeah, halfway through. <laughs> it is really only in one panel. And it's possible that it's a coloring error, but I choose to believe that during his story, he got very upset and ripped off his pants and then had to put on some blue jeans. But then he did get angry again when he was talking about the fight and ripped off his blue jeans and had to put on a new pair of white pleated pants. He must, his pants budget must be real high. It is through the proverbial roof. Fortunately, he is a very wealthy man. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's why... He decided to move into uh, an apartment in the poor neighborhood, which he did, uh, despite being a multimillionaire from his father's patents, which he inherited, uh, is because he wants to spend that money on pants. <laughs> no, baby. He needs to spend that money on pants. Fair enough. <laughs> in this issue, this is kind of weird because it is very clearly a focus on one character for the issue. So I decided to base most my decisions for these categories on the Grand Canyon storyline. Excellent. Who did you have as your Aqualad? Who was the best Teen Titan in the camping adventure portion of this issue? I'm going to say Starfire. Okay. Because she asked some really good questions to keep the story going. She was very supportive. She was a reflective listener. Mm -hmm. And she really just kind of greased the wheels there to make Vic open up yeah i i agree excellent excellent call i had beast boy uh because it was his idea to go camping oh uh, and i think that was a good idea and also he wore some green overalls <laughs> but you're right starfire also did a very good job conversely who was your speedy the worst of teen titans i think we probably have the same one for this is it wally because he doesn't fucking know that raven's a vegetarian <laughs> like, what who yes he has a huge crush on Raven at this point. <laughs> and he doesn't pay enough attention to even know that his teammate, his roommate, his potential love interest is a vegetarian. Well, maybe that's why he's not, you know, hitting that. It's possible. Mm -hmm. Although it's also possible that it is because if Raven allowed herself to have feelings, then her evil dad would crawl out of her tummy and wreck the universe. Mm. But that might just be an excuse that she's using. <laughs> I really wouldn't want to hook up with Wally. No. <laughs> He's the worst. He really is. And it's a goddamn shame because in the early issues of the original Teen Titans run, nice guy. Yeah. Yeah. What happened? You get a different writer. You get different, trying to bring out different characterizations. Uh, he's specifically portrayed in these as being a Midwestern conservative uh, in opposition to the rest of the Titans who were viewed as liberal. Mm. Um, at least by the standards of the day. It was a choice that was made, but it doesn't really work for me in yeah, the way me... that it's a previously established character. They also have him not wanting to have his powers and not liking them and saying that, like, I never asked to be super powered and have him be very angsty. When, in fact, he was the, the chairman of the Flash Junior fan club mm -hmm. and was super yeah. stoked to get his Flash powers and was a fun-loving kid. Uh, and they've kind of taken that away and created this new character, which Ooh. I think can be a useful character for them to have. But they actually did introduce new characters and they could have just given those attributes to one of them. Yeah. You know, it's going to be interesting. What's that? Is reading Wally's. He doesn't character. get one. Oh, it's the new characters that were introduced. that get them. I'm sorry. 
Well, I mean, it sounds like you need some reconciliation there. You yeah. need some. You need. Oh, some. I I agree. Uh, and that would have been interesting. But the four that we get are Cyborg, Raven, Starfire, and then Changeling. Uh, even though we did have Beast Boy before, but he had hadn't really been appearing all that frequently in comic books and had changed his name. Mm. Okay. Well, we can write one. Okay. We'll call it Wally Why You Such an Asshole. <laughs> I love it. Speaking of creating our own stories for characters, in the year of our Lord, 1982, and the month of our Lord, June, what was Aqualad probably up to? <sighs> Aqualad is a very interesting guy. He really is. He leads a beautiful, full life. Yes, he does. And you know what he loves? What? Peace. Yeah? And he hates nuclear proliferation. He does. And he loves Linda Rodstead. Yeah? So, on June 12th, mm -hmm. <laughs> Aqualad is marching for nuclear disarmament. Oh. Um, it's a cause that he believes deeply in. Mm -hmm. And Linda Rodstead's there. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very good. Where was this march taking place? It was in New York. New oh, York City. right, right, right. Um, well, it's just a short hop, skip, and a jump for one with sea strength and limbs from New York down to Washington, D.C., where Aqualad was testifying in front of Congress on behalf of the Equal Rights Amendment, which unfortunately did not go through. It was relatively narrowly defeated. But everyone was really impressed with the speech that Aqualad gave, and they were wondering how he got to be so well-spoken. And so he talked about his uh, his education and how he tested into an eighth-grade class. And he probably left out the part where Aquaman and his sea buddies helped him cheat on the test to get in, which happened in issue 38 of the original Teen Titans series. It's actually a flashback to an earlier comic book, but it's great. The, all the sea creatures spell out the answers to the test that Aqualad is unprepared for because he was hit on the head with a boat. But everyone was really impressed with Aqualad's level of education and were surprised when he noted that he was not, in fact, a U.S. citizen. He is a citizen of Atlantis. And they decided, much to their credit, that every child in the United States, regardless of whether they are a citizen or not, uh, is entitled to an education. And that, that bill did pass on June 15th. Thanks to Aqualad. Yeah, Aqualad. Mm-hmm. What a guy. Yeah. Loving Linda Rodstad. <laughs> Marching for peace. Advocating for the ERA. It's still... Yeah. Would yeah. be nice. Mm-hmm. So... <laughs> Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. This was, It was wonderful to have you as a guest, and I am looking forward to covering the Raven issue with you. Me too, and I'm looking forward to reading that article. Mm -hmm. Yes, and thank you for joining us, listeners. Uh, we will try to be back with Corey next week. Hopefully he will be back from his realm that is slightly out of phase with our own due to a transporter malfunction. But when he does get back, he is going to be in Thailand, so we will see how the recording goes. And then, as I mentioned, in the weeks of February 11th and the following week, we are going to be on an actual vacation. So uh, I will miss you all greatly during that time. But I hope that you will bear with us and rejoin us when we come back. 
If you would like to get in touch with us, you can do so at ttwasteland at gmail.com. You can find us on the internet by typing in Titan of the Defense. Uh, that might also lead you to some Tennessee Titans football stuff, but you could just ignore that or learn more about the Tennessee Titans football franchise. You can leave us reviews on iTunes or whatever iTunes is calling themselves these days. Uh, if you would like to give us some money, you can do so at patreon.com backslash ttwasteland. I'm going to try to be posting content up there more regularly in the upcoming months. And yeah, Thanks for listening. Um, Kronk. Kronk. Thank you, friends. Bye. Bye. And they knew it. I hope you will bear with us and join us when we come back. <laughs> <laughs>